Hi, I'm Tim Rood. I am the head of government and industry relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest segment of On the Hill. So today I am very fortunate and excited to have an old friend, Dave Stevens, who needs no introduction, but I did want to quickly say hi, Dave, and give you the chance to say hi to the audience. Hey, Tim. Hey, everybody. Great to be with you, as always. <laughs> so this is clearly a formality with you, Dave, but I'll try to give you the give folks the Reader's Digest version of your background. Now you are the CEO of Mountain Lake Consulting. You do guys do a variety of things from our conversations. You've been around a little longer than me, almost about 40 years, and I'm about 30 years in the industry, which is probably terrifying to us both. You were obviously the president and CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association. Not exactly during the most quiet, wholesome times. There was a lot going on. Same thing for your role as the assistant secretary of housing um, and the FHA commissioner, of course, at HUD. Before that, you were the chief operating officer and president of Long and Foster, which I'd love to learn more about that. That's an interesting gig. And I think where I first met you was when you were at World Savings Bank. I know you were Wells Fargo, and then before that was World Savings and Freddie Mac, where you were basically running single family. So no shortage of relevant and interesting experience. You got your CMB in 2015. I do need to do that. From the University of Boulder in Colorado. And you have four kids as well. I didn't realize that. I too have four kids. Yeah. So yeah. So clearly our judgment can be called into question. But (laughs) (laughs) there you go. Anyway, brother, thanks for doing this, man. Uh, Real quick, though, obviously you're a public figure. Folks know a lot about you personally. How you been since during COVID? I know you had some health things that you seem to continue to wrestle back right into the lane, which is amazing. So clearly we all just want to check in. Well, thanks, Tim. And yeah. It's been an interesting ride, but you and I bumped around the same circles for a long, long time here. Yeah, so I, I have, uh, as I've made very public, and I still do, I've been battling stage four metastatic prostate cancer. Started in the prostate, decided to take a visit around the rest of my body. But I'm eight years in, and uh, you know, there's no doubt when I, we first got diagnosed back in 2016 that we had no idea about the advances in medicine. And I was running the MBA. I'm sure everybody who worked for me at the MBA at the time immediately went to their computers and had me long gone from the earth by this point in time. But I got connected with the head of research for this disease at Johns Hopkins. He's probably the most renowned in the field. And as they constantly remind me every time I go up to Johns Hopkins, when they hear I have Ken Pienta, they say, oh, he doesn't take patients, he picks his patients. <laughs> but it's brought me into a lot of very unique treatments that just aren't available. One was not available in the United States until just got approved by the FDA here. I've been getting it over in Germany, where it came from. And uh, that's how you fight back. Cancer has, has so many developments coming its way. So fortunately, today, eight years in, I'm going on my eighth year, I feel pretty good and continue to work a lot in our business. So, But sure as hell not holding you back, Dave. I see you out there quite, quite a bit. So I don't know. Maybe I, I need to get off uh, or on Adderall and some other medications that maybe you can send me <laughs> in the right direction because, man, you were a ball of energy and, and seemed to be coming in 
I didn't say hot in an unconstructive way. I mean, I, I don't think you and I have agreed on more things in the last 10 years than probably the 10 years before that. So I don't know. One of us got a hell of a lot smarter. Probably me. Thrilled to see it. Love the enthusiasm. And I think at a point in time like this in the industry, you need more leaders like you that are giving life and enthusiasm and hope to an industry that's, you know, hit a bit of a gully. Without question, it's been interesting. You know, the old adage, you can tell where, where someone stand, sits by, or stands by where they sit, I guess is the expression. And I've had jobs where I can be freer to talk about issues that are important and others where I can. Obviously, as a corporate executive at Freddie Mac, I was much more limited, represented a public company at the time. It's still public technically, but I guess given the shareholder win yesterday, it feels more public. But the, um, you know, in the MBA, you have to play a different role when you run a trade association. It's um, you got to thread the needle between fighting for the issues, but not getting too far afray from the regulators that you need support and help from. And, and that's a difficult one to work in. The nice thing about my current business, Mountain Lake Consulting, is all my clients, for the most part, the majority of them are independent mortgage bankers, some pretty large ones, some medium-sized ones, and then a, a few other firms. But you know, all the issues I talk about are really hot issues for my clients. And they're not just my clients, Tim, as you know. The stuff I write about and publish are things that are concerned to mortgage bankers across the country. So it's, it's a nice to be able to be a little more unfettered, less tied down in terms of what I'm able to talk about. Yeah. And I'm certainly with you that you know housing and mortgages to a slightly less extent are obviously bipartisan issues. Maybe 65% own a home, but you know, <laughs> damn near 100% prefer to live indoors, right? So I mean, it affects everybody. So clearly it's a bipartisan issue. So I think that there's a lot of common ground for the country to tackle for members of Congress to truly consider legislation that could obviously attack some of the things that we probably both think are the, the critical issue in the industry, which probably starts, maybe not ends, but starts and then pops up again in the middle is inventory. And while there were some legislative efforts, you know, back in Build Back Better days when that was being drafted, hundreds of billions of dollars that would go to a variety of things, but largely it was towards um, new home construction. But it never got off the ground. And I think that we're all hopeful that something like that will resurface, but it, it ain't going to be a legislative issue. It'll certainly come through something administrative. I didn't know what your take was on that. Yeah. I mean, the, unfortunately, by the time the infrastructure better bill came to the cutting room floor, I think Congress had already gotten weary of all the other efforts to try to stimulate the economy through COVID. And that got whittled down. And so, you know, as you rightfully said, there were a bunch of provisions in there that would have helped provide financing for new construction, also would have brought things like down payment assistance programs in and other things. And it just didn't make it, which leaves us with a reality, which Tim, I assume you'd agree with. The ability to legislate change only comes at very unique moments in an administration's life with a Congress. And clearly, you know, with presidential election heating up dramatically, and I mean the word drama 
that we're going to face going into the next election, the likely the ability to get anything legislated other than get some form of budget, whether it's a continuing resolution or whatever it is, and deal with like the debt ceiling, there isn't going to be really much else done. And so people may try to introduce legislation. It's just not a chance. I continue to believe that an administration can play a role in promoting partnerships, partnerships amongst a wide array of regulators that tinker in housing or mortgages or both, but all come up with their own individual sets of rules and policies. And they don't seem to think about working together as a group to come up with, to think about like downstream effects of the multiple layering of those federal efforts. And then likewise, the other challenge we clearly see is there are things like zoning rules and regulations that have gotten only tougher over the last 20 years, specifically, are making it really hard for home builders and new forms of housing to be developed because just the cost and time length to come to market from the time of land acquisition till the time you give the keys to a home buyer has gotten longer, and that reduces the marginal uh, returns of that. And that kind of national effort is is going to require a whole lot of focus. And I'll, you know, I always harken back to the end of World War II, and you think about places like Levittown in New York, which was funded a lot by New Deal funds and built, I think, 1,100 homes at the very outset. Granted, they discriminated and they didn't allow African-Americans to move in that community. But the effort to build a whole bunch of real estate for Americans was a national effort. And that's what we don't have right now. And as you know, because we all look at the same data, we have an incredible shortage of real estate inventory to deal with our current demand coming into the market. So it's a really stubborn challenge. And Glad to talk more about this, what I think needs to be done, but at least thinking about a congressional solution, that's just not going to be in the cards. And so it requires a different kind of focus. Uh, I agree. So there's two aspects of that, that at least I've thought about it. One, of course, is the glaring question, which is you have all these fantastic federal agencies. I may or may not be being uh, sarcastic, but you have all these, <laughs> these fantastic federal agencies that are waiting for like a dog at dinner time, waiting for their bowl, right? Waiting for the orders to come in terms of new legislation that of course is all of the legislative authority is, is bestowed onto Congress. So the agencies are waiting for those laws to pass so that they can react to them and write rules and interpretive guidance and all that fun stuff. But in the absence of new legislation, you do find that these agencies are running off. I think they're pretty well organized, honestly, right now but they're running off slightly half-cocked and have a tendency to work sometimes at cross-purposes because, again, they're not making a lot of decisions that are based on new statutes, but they might be new interpretations of old statutes is best we can do. And that has trickle-down effects on the, on the industry, of course, as they're trying to react to new policies, implement them, drive efficiencies, stay out of court, all of those fun things. So I didn't know what your take was on that. Look, it, it's gotten confusing. And Jared Seberg wrote a piece for Cohen, which is a research publication that a lot of people inside the Beltway get. And it was it's about two weeks ago at this point, but it talked about the 
it, the question was, is the web of regul regulators in Washington unknowingly creating a tightening of credit because they're all individually acting on one respective marketplace, which is mortgage and housing? If you think back before HERA, which is the legislation created in 2008, dealing with the Great Recession and primarily dealing with the GSEs being put into conservatorship, HUD had a lot of authorities that do not exist today. And so there really is no central body that can drive housing policy. I mean, I still, I still begin to question why the HUD secretary with its current authorities would be serving on the president's cabinet when the regulator for Fannie, Freddie, and the federal home loan banks is now under a separate independent regulator called FHFA, when it used to be under the HUD secretary, when the Office of Regulatory Affairs that implemented things like the SAFE Act, which was under my authority when I came in initially, is all now part of this other group called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a new regulator created out of Dodd-Frank. And the problem here is there's no voice or reason. There's no single unique entity, and I, my own view is it needs to be a White House view, that says, guys, you got to coordinate what you're doing here. Because in the end of the day, we have you know, tinkering with FHFA, LLPA pricing grids, which I got very aggressive on, not trying to be political, just I thought it was a bad judgment the way it was implemented. I don't think it achieved anything either. And then independently, right when the FHFA director and the GSEs are trying to improve pricing, particularly for some lower FICO, high LTV buckets of that grid, Julia Gordon, who runs the FHA, just drops mortgage insurance premium by 30 basis points, which really offsets all the math You know, in, in, immediately. These are two federal regulators, both head by people at the will of the president, and they're both sort of acting as almost like they're not in cooperation. And we've repurchased rules that the GSEs are implementing differently by each GSE, frankly, that aren't consistent with how the Ginnie Mae programs operate. Then you have all the enforcement actions, which come out of either False Claims Act, out of HUD, using the Department of Justice as the enforcement action. You have the CFPB with a whole plethora of enforcement actions and settlements that are coming forth. And we're not even talking about the states at this point. And then you have Michael Barr, you know, and, and the OCC and the other regulators who just published a new proposed rule on bank capital standards, which will have all sorts of very uncomfortable tentacles that will strike at every aspect of our mortgage system for mortgage servicing value, uh, right values and more. And so, you know, I, I really think the biggest risk we have in the housing finance sector is a lack of coordination and a lack of focus by the presidential administration by giving, you know, trying to empower a real housing head, which used to be that HUD secretary and has now been diminished to basically running the FHA. Ginny May almost acts independently in many ways, but it is part of HUD still, thank God. And then, you know, some multifamily housing, hospital financing and community block development grants, but there isn't really a whole lot more. It's not an overarching role like the Department of Commerce or the Department of Transportation, where you see those secretaries, you know, getting involved in any issue that's national, that's impacting America, 
it just doesn't happen in housing because the HUD secretary is so underwhelming, not because it's Secretary Fudge, it's because she doesn't have the authority anymore. And not like we saw when Cuomo, for example, ran HUD and was considered a pretty powerful figure in the housing system in this country. So it's a really challenging time. And I believe personally that the shortage of inventory, the demographic demand, and the layering of regulatory risk being placed on all the institutions that participate in this country is probably at its worst sort of tipping point than we've ever seen. I certainly don't remember it in my lifetime. I agree. I agree on a lot of that. I think on most of it, I do think that we're at, uh, I'm not prepared to see it. I think we're at a tipping point in the mortgage market, not in the real estate market just yet. So what I would say is that on the mortgage side, I mean, Part of my thinking is, is that the, the government's in an ever expanding role right now when it comes to mortgage finance, because for one, of course, it's a bipartisan issue, right? So everyone's constituents are worried about how much it costs to buy, how much it costs to rent, how much it costs to own, all those different things. So I think that that's certainly a, a hot topic for the administrations and for, and for uh, you know, obviously lawmakers in general. So they're getting behind those things. But as you, as you kind of look at the whole industry right now, the tipping point on the mortgage side, of course, comes from the originators just struggling with uh, profitability, to say the least. And as we all can imagine, I run companies, you run companies. Losing money for 12 months is awful. Losing money for 18 months is damn near indefensible, right? So that you know, start your clock whenever you want, but it does feel like you're getting to a perilous point. And I think that the FHFA, I've heard, has gone so far is that they've kind of assembled a bit of a, Sandra comes from the FDIC, so maybe it's symbolic of that, but they're looking at their own sort of deal team, casual or formal, and the deal team is going to be looking at how do we marry, identify uh, weak counterparties, and then marry them up with good counterparties in some more organized fashion than the, the free market would handle on its own. So, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think you're, you're nailing it. I agree. I, I, I won't go down the real estate side. I think there are perils there as well. But to your point, I mean, the mortgage industry does not know how to right size quick enough. And it's a challenge for it because the fact that some really good executives and mortgage businesses are still heading into the fall with the high probability that they're going to have uh, negative earnings months through the third quarter, rest of the third quarter, and fourth quarter, and maybe first quarter, which will be the slowest part of the cycle here, tells you that they're, you know, they're going to be a bunch of companies that are already beyond their sort of qualifiable lifespan should have been. And I think there's going to be more change. I think the market's going to shrink a lot between now and and the end of March next year. You know, it's interesting with the GSEs, and Tim, I'm sure you're aware of this as well because you you have close connections there. You know, one thing that's that's troubling is when you you have a lender in the marketplace and they originate a mortgage that creates reps and warrants that that originator is responsible for. A lot of these transactions are pure asset sales when one company sells to another, and so when you do the asset sell and the, there's a buyer and a seller. The seller then is no longer in business and those reps and warrants 
are difficult to pursue, to say the least. So you really have a an interesting set of circumstances that I believe are part of which, and you may think otherwise, but I think they're part of this sort of change and repurchase behavior and sampling behavior that the GSEs are engaged with. They certainly have a counterparty risk threshold here that they must be getting concerned about. And to your point, having some SWAT teams, some specialized deal teams to try to make friendly marriages make sense. So I'm glad you brought that up. This is kind of a squirrely one, but so you're bringing up the counterparty issues. Obviously, I, I touched on them as well. Is it just me or do you get the sense? I'm going to be generous and say at times, because I, I know a lot of smart, thoughtful people in the administration, and I know they work themselves to the bone and they are doing anything and everything that they can to help things along. But if you look at it, it appears like you're getting a mixed message, right? So on one side of the mouth, you have the administration. I'm just using that as a catch-all, right? But the administration would say that if you looked at borrowers, okay, so they have record levels of equity, right? Tappable equity, any kind of equity. Not a record number of people have paid off their mortgages, but 50% have paid them off. Record low delinquencies, record low unemployment, all of these things, right, that are just the you would think are the salad days for the mortgage market. And judging by loss mitigation and foreclosure prevention policies, the administration seems to have said, there's really no risk here, right? All you have to do is attest to a hardship. I'm not going to break anyone's onions about over, hey, uh, Dave, do you qualify for this modification or not? Hey, man, you were kind enough to pick up the phone and ask for help. So boy, howdy, we're going to take care of it. Again, I'm not meaning to be too casual, but it feels like the only way that these policies would come to light would be in an environment where people thought that way. So nothing to worry about there. But then you look at the other side of the coin and you're looking at the renewed focus on counterparty risks, both on the issuer side and Ginny May, on the IMB side for FHFA. And you're thinking to yourself, well, well, wait a minute. I mean, we all know this is a liquidity issue, but if you're telling me that the industry is pretty damn sound, that there really isn't any credit risk to speak of, then it's unclear to me while there's so much effort and attention on these counterparty issues, when you know we're already struggling with a difficult market, and you know UNICEF is probably not going to get into the origination or servicing businesses anytime soon. So help us help you from an industry perspective. What, what's your take on that dichotomy or that contradiction? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you're really uncovering a layer here that has a lot of layers beneath it. I pu- I'm puzzled that there's this focus, let's talk, let's talk about the non-bank counterparty risk concerns that both Ginny has and the FHFA has. There are tools, right? You could stabilize these markets by having backup liquidity facilities that would be available to them. And you know, we all know why liquidity is important. It doesn't solve the whole problem, but in Ginny, particularly, liquidity is important because servicers have to make advances for a lot longer period of time than you do on a Freddie Fannie loan to the investor, even if the borrower is not paying you. So you need cash to be able to do that. And if you don't have a lot of liquidity available to you, particularly in a credit crunch, 
that can create a shortfall. You eventually get redeemed, right? Because the loans are guaranteed. But we've talked about, you know, Ginny had this uh, liquidity facility that they were trying to get in place during COVID, but it had all sorts of restrictions to it. One of which is you had to declare yourself insolvent as a lender, which didn't come off very well. And then on the flip side, we also have the FHFA put out for comment a request to consider Federal Home Loan Bank membership and focus going forward. And, you know, I always struggle with this. Look, you have tools available to you that will bring more stability into the sector. So why don't you use that? Why instead are we thrusting more instability on a sector which, to your point, has originated extremely great credit quality? In fact, if you look at the GSE's profits that were released recently, Holy moly. They were huge. And a big contributor to profits was they regained, for Freddie, I think it was ha- more than half a billion dollars in loan loss reserves that they yeah. took Man, in as over, uh, over a billion. Yeah. And so hmm. here, they're, here they're, they're saying we have the best credit quality book we've ever seen. We're printing record earnings significantly more than even a year ago, same quarter, at a time when everybody else is struggling, but we're also putting back more loans. We have counterparty risk concerns and no FHFA, we're not going to come up with a solution that brings in the federal home loan bank system or other options which can help at least alleviate some of that burden. So it's, um, again, I, I think this is part of this sort of lack of coordination, I think. And Tim, to your point, the big risk we've seen so far this year has been the banks, right? And we're still we're still hearing warning signs about how many other banks in this country maybe have inverted balance sheets where their cost of deposits is higher than what they're earning on their investments. And and that's a bigger shoe to drop because those are actually risk-taking entities where at least non-banks take far less risk. They pass most of it through. They retain short-term liquidity risks needing to service mortgages, for example, or fund their loans with a warehouse line. But then they're all sold away. And other than repurchases, their risks are far much lower. So, it, you know, I, I see all the focus on the IMBs. I see solutions that are almost at the fingertips of the regulators that, frankly, are just not being deployed. And yet I see other moves going on that just continue to raise speculation about the segments of this market and are making it harder by increasing costs to them. So I, I'm sure there's rational responses to all of this. And I can I, I know how I would have answered it when I ran a single family business as Freddie Mac, in terms of the repurchase discussion. But there is a balance here, and you know we I used the word the phrase tipping points earlier, and I, I think this can contribute to tipping points that we just that aren't helpful when we have a whole sector of the economy, the whole mortgage industry, is desperately trying to stay alive. That's the big challenge right now. I agree. I, you know, I'm shocked at that there hasn't been outside of PTAP, the Ginny Mace solution, a liquidity solution. The GSEs have goofed around with it. They did it during times of stress. They could modify the cash window. The Fed or the OCC could change some of the rules to allow for different risk weightings, which we're talking about now on, you know, warehouse lending or even MSR financing on government assets, for goodness sake. You know, those shouldn't be third rail sort of topics. They should be logical. 
And I remember talking with Sheila Bear about this, and her opinion was kind of like, you know, I don't think Washington gets the IMBs, right? The independent mortgage bankers. They don't get it. They don't understand it. I don't know if this is my editorial to that. I don't know if it's just obstinate persistence on a regulator's perspective that they're going to ping banks and then try to lure them back when there isn't a bloody chance in human. Oh, I was going to say holy hell. I <laughs> up with a better one. In holy hell that a, a yeah. bank could, would go back into that business in any meaningful way. It's a darn gift right now that they're acting as they do as basically arms dealers, no offense, for the industry providing all of the financing for the origination, servicing, servicing advances. I mean, they are the, the lifeblood of it. But at the end of the day, when it comes to the, the tools, public policy, well, the implementation tools, buddy, are IMBs and not necessarily banks. And until we start treating the IMBs as those critical business partners, then you know we're all going to be scratching our heads when we see a huge systemic event on the origination or servicing side and the government, as the trend would dictate, find themselves throwing their hands up again and saying, oh, gosh, well, I guess we're in the origination business now, or I guess we're in the servicing business now because, again, it's a human right and we need to make sure it's preserved. You know, it's when I was in the administration, we began the the first big, big bank settlement process. And I was front and center in that. I didn't stay through it, but it was the first time we used False Claims Act. I was in the meeting when it first became apparent that, ah, you could use this False Claims Act, it gets treble damages. And that's a great way to make these big banks pay, write big checks for their role in the uh, housing crisis. And then after beating up the banks for how many number of years with hundreds of billions of dollars in settlements through false claims, mm-hmm. then the HUD secretary started worrying that the big banks were leaving the program and put in on overlays. And one of the large bank CEOs in an earnings call pronounced proudly that they were getting out of the FHA program. And I remember a particular HUD secretary calling me. I was at the MBA at the time saying, how do we get the big banks back in? And I'm like, you can't beat the living daylights out of them, <laughs> and then invite them back to dinner. It's just not going to work that way. And they've never come back, right? It's, in fact, they've, they've exited even further away, particularly you know, banks like Wells Fargo, which has publicly announced their distaste for mortgage and massively shrinking their footprint just to serve their, their bank customers. And so you beat the crap out of the bank system, and they, they departed especially from the areas that have the greatest credit risk, which means those programs that likely provide the greatest affordability for those same classes of Americans that a Democratic administration in particular is most concerned with. So you're not creating, you're creating a system that's going to discourage lending to those families that Secretary Fudge and President Biden and Vice President Harris have all spoken about from the podium that need help getting into home ownership, right? And then, so now we're shifting ground and we're saying, okay, now let's go get the non-banks. I mean, in the end of the day, if you look at the data, and Urban Institute put out some really good data recently, the non-banks are doing, obviously, the majority of loans in this country. They're also doing the ones with the lowest credit scores and the highest debt-to-income ratios. 
which adds a little more risk, no question, but it's still within the framework of a qualified mortgage post Dodd Frank world. And surprise, surprise, as Urban pointed out, they're also doing more loans to minorities, African Americans and Hispanics, on a per asset basis than the banking system is, because they're willing to take more credit risk because they didn't. They, many of them grew after a lot of this uh, False Claims Act stuff happened. Not all of them, but a lot of them did. And so they don't have the experience to say, I'm shying away from it. But now they're coming in and there's all these concerns about regulatory capital and enforcement actions, et cetera, et cetera. And I get it. We got to hold the industry accountable when they make mistakes, when they commit fraud. You know, this I have enough history where I've seen the bad side of this of this industry, which is absolutely the small minority. But nevertheless, you got to keep a watchful eye out. But we already scared the banks away. Are we going to do the same to the non-banks? Because in the end of the day, the first-time homebuyer with a low down payment, which is the vast majority of first-time homebuyers today, depends on either an FHA loan or a high LTV GSE loan to buy that home. And if just simply put the capital rule as proposed right now, doesn't get modified, the amount of capital you're going to need on a less than 10% down payment for a Freddie Fannie loan doubles. And so it's just, again, part of this, where is the leadership of thought? You know, I, you, you know, and I've done this too many times over the years. I did it from the podium when I ran the MBA and argued that we need an individual that reports to the president that has the power of the president and whose sole job it is to coordinate all of these activities going on by all the regulators. They would not have legal authority over them, but they could call an FSOC-like meeting. If your listeners know what FSOC is, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, they could create that kind of meeting where that they run on the behest of the President of the United States, bringing empowerment back to the White House to at least demand and require coordination and accountability whether they coordinate or do not coordinate amongst each other. This is like chipping away. This is death by a thousand cuts that I see going on in this marketplace. And you know, you see the credit availability indexes coming out. They're getting tighter. They're not getting looser. And that's the challenge. What's interesting about all of that too is that, you know, when, well, let's just look at the, the last crisis where the GSEs had a market share, I don't know, call it 45 right? 2006-ish in aggregate, yeah. which is pretty staggering right. when you think about now. I mean, post-QM, which was qualified mortgage, it had the effect of basically, my take on it was it had the effect of legislating the credit risk that a company could reasonably take. Right. Do you agree? Uh, totally. Especially in the early days, right? Where you just came out of shark-infested yeah. waters, right? And you're looking for land sharks everywhere. Where the hell is yeah. the next thing that's going to come and jump me? So if you th remember back, you know, when uh, before the crisis, so the GSEs had got their market share dropped down to like 45%, private label MBS, all that fun stuff was going on. The government granted reacting to exigent circumstances, found themselves having to fill the vacuum that was left by the private sector. CFPB put a nail in the coffin, I my mind, in my opinion through the QM rule, and then the private sector kind of dried up. So now you have your, a situation yeah. where originations, roughly 85% of the market is going to be government-backed, you know, roughly about the same on the servicing side of things. 
So if it's good public policy to get people into homes, as it sounds, with a lot less conversation around the timing, the cost, the expense, right? It's more so a conversation about we need to get more people into housing and, and wealth creation around those things. So that certainly is, is going on, but it's, it's a little concerning, of course, that the GSEs and HUD, which were meant to be counter-cyclical, are pretty darn pro-cyclical, and the market and the real estate prices are affecting that. Do you think that the federal government should continue on that path of utter domination, or do we need things like private capital, even if it's a partnership, to be able to bring some more risk into this and to diversify the players in this market and to take the government from a pro-cyclical role and then put them back into a counter-cyclical role when they need to be there? Look, it's funny, I'm right in the middle of Mark Calabria's book, and I'll be debating him on stage in Las Vegas. I don't think it's debating. We'll be talking on stage in Las Vegas together. And he makes some of these exact points, right? It's, it, he, you know, he believes that the, the government role in housing finance is so overgrown, it's, it has become pro-cyclical, meaning it's crowding out private capital. And you know, we've talked about how do you bring back a private label securitization market. I was actually surprised. And I was welcome to see a large independent mortgage banker just announced this week that they're, putting, they're issuing a large private label securitization of fixed rate mortgages. I promise that they're low LTV and extraordinarily high FICO and getting as close to kind of a, a AAA execution as you can. And they're probably high bow because you don't get good execution through the GSEs on high bow, even if they're within the limits. But <laughs> anyway, whatever it is, people are fumbling trying to get a market to come back. But the idea of bringing back a true private market and one that ultimately leads you to have true competition where the GSEs and the Ginny May programs are more targeted, play a more limited role with private capital really leading the way. That's I'm pretty certain that's where Calabria wanted to take the GSEs when he was FHFA director. And I see some value in that. You and I both know my history. When I first was a loan rep, I started as a loan originator back in the early 80s. We initially offered a monthly adjustable rate mortgage tied to the cost of funds index. When we offered it, you had to have a 25% down payment. We didn't do it anything, anything less than a 75 LTV. You had to have great credit. And we didn't have deep teaser discounted rates. Ultimately, markets can distort themselves. And what we saw leading up to 2008, the housing crisis, is all the markets distorted themselves, including the private label securitization market with tranching and repackaging distressed assets into better assets and, and all these various structured pools that, that could get good execution on the market, even AAA. And mm -hmm. as a result, because we went too far and we bastardized what otherwise should have been a, a rational market where some of these programs made sense to have in the market, it all blew up and nothing's ever returned. It's at the point where we still don't trust trustees because people blame them. We don't, PLS market doesn't trust the MI companies. The ratings agencies won't rate a bond with MI on it any higher, which they used to do. And so, Kind of creating a pathway to bring back some of these programs is very difficult. But I think if you were to ask a Calabria, he'd probably say, if you shrink the GSEs enough, 
and limit their activities, a private market will come. It may be a little more expensive at first, but it'll find its right size because there'll be a real market, a real tradable currency that's out there in the market. Right now, everything's a spot deal. Redwood does a little spot security or whoever the others are. I'm not going to name company names, but people do PLS issuance and try to create markets has yet to be done because every each issuance is its own unique security without commonality to it with the next one. And it's not constant and continuous. So it's not like in dealer screens that everybody sees liquidity. I think there's this question as, if you shrunk the GSEs back, would a private sector return? And would that be good for the country? And that's, you know, it's a whole debate that I think people have all the time. Yeah, if you could identify the risk, mitigate the risk, and God help me, even price for the risk. I know that sounds outrageous. Yeah, people would get back into the business. That's capitalism versus patriotism. I'm not getting in this business to get my head handed to me and to be a good public right. servant, right? I mean, right. if I could do good while making money, then it makes the world go round, right? So that, that I totally get. But I mean, some of the policy ideas that I haven't heard in a while that I thought were pretty dang spot on in the early days of the administration haven't seemed to manifest. And they were things that were, you know, you, if you tried to reconcile, okay, so you want to expand home ownership. As a housing guy, hell yeah, last legitimate wealth creation opportunity in the country is what I would say, 99% of the time, right? So, but the reality was, as the administration was coming online, you saw obviously the COVID spike on top of the echo spikes from other home price appreciations. So they were looking at, okay, we want to expand access to credit, but boy, this doesn't seem like the best time to be pushing potentially marginal borrowers into a housing market that appeared to be cresting pretty plainly, right? So that seemed to be a bad idea. So instead, they were thinking more along the lines of, hey, look, a rising tide lifts all boats. Why don't we focus on communities that are kind of downtrodden, underserved, forgotten, and we'll do more of a community development sort of thing. Like I remember Fannie Mae did something called the American Communities Fund when I was there in the early 2000s, which was similar thinking, which is, you know, can we buy a property here or there or help people buy? Yeah. But is that going to have a meaningful impact? No. If I took down two square blocks in downtown Baltimore and then I, I got business partners, retailers, financiers, I did bond offerings, I got anchor tenants, I built up multifamily properties. Well, then you could get people in pretty much on the ground floor in those things. And that rising tide will rise, will raise their boats and they'll get the home price appreciation that goes along with that entire community kind of blossoming or springing up. That seemed like it would have been good for inventory. That would have been good for originators. It hasn't happened. And part of the reason I think it might not have happened is because the secondary market for those things or the GSEs feeling like they don't have it in their charter to lend on raw land or to lend on, you know, basically not real property. I don't yeah. want your talking on that. I agree completely. I I think I think you're right. I think we, we didn't, you know, it's it's what entities are going to provide that investment capital. I it still goes back to me that who would drive this, you know? It's I know I sound like a broken drum or whatever, but I just the lack of a single point of leadership to drive national efforts that can fulfill housing challenges 
is one of the more alarming things about today's market. I mean, Secretary Fudge, I've, she's done testimony and press events where she's talked about improving, you know, building more manufactured housing for first-time home buyers, working on targeted communities, targeted urban zones. When I was in the first administration, I mean, we used to have meetings in uh, about housing. It was like everything was about Detroit. All we cared about was if you can <laughs> fix Detroit, you can fix everything else. And it's, um, you know, everything you said is right. There isn't an easy solution to it. But if Congress isn't going to legislate the Capitol, then you need a really empowered federal agency whose responsibility is, is to solve housing issues and address them in this country. And that's the shortfall. We don't have a FEMA to address the housing crisis and uh, the housing shortfall. And but to your point, absolutely, that's where you make you know, that idea of making investment in communities that might be harder hit will raise the values of all the homes around it, and even the homes in the suburbs as those values come up. Well, hopefully, it'll come up. I assume it will sooner or later. As I look back at the. Basically, I, I did a presentation recently. It was, I, this sounds a terribly exciting. 100 years of housing policy and of offsetting risk management, which was kind of a generous take to suggest that there was offsetting risk management to new policies. But here's the clear takeaway. Outside of, let's just call it the Depression, Roosevelt, and outside of Eisenhower and the Second World War, all the policies associated with Mortgage and housing had to do with demand, access to credit, pricing of credit, not inventory. So you created this for you know reasons I can speculate, and I'm sure you can too. So for every effective policy that gets more people into a house, or at least on better terms, then that drives up, of course, more demand, makes it more affordable to buy so that people can buy more, so prices go up. And then four years later, a new administration comes in and they're like, holy mackerel, prices have gotten out of control again, or, you know, we need to affect something. So let's go back and do another demand side solution, make it cheaper, make it wider, whatever that might be. And now's the reckoning, right? You've got a hundred years of those policies that I guess worked on one level, but as all consequences are unintended, holy mackerel, do we have some unintended consequences on the inventory side that don't seem to be easy to fix? Yeah, no, very true. We see that effect even looking between the last two administrations, how one set of leaders comes in for four years and implements their own view of how policy should be created. And let's talk about our world around housing. And then it shifts to the other party comes in and the new regulators who come in to take over, take back everything that the other previous regulator put in place. Exactly. And, uh, you're not getting consistency. You're certainly not getting momentum. Yeah. And all the efficiencies you built in, finally implementing that policy and, and operationalizing it go out the window. Yeah. So it's it, so obviously a, a colorful time. So I did want to say, I think I mentioned to you um, when we first spoke about the podcast, it is a little ironic that um, I changed some of the format more recently as I was avoiding getting into conversations with CEOs of mortgage companies. For a number of reasons, I just didn't want it to be redundant. I didn't want to, you did this, so you need to do that, that sort of thing. So I didn't get into it, but, and I focused more on the DC stuff. However, 
in 2023, it did seem like the industry was in distress. And I could relate as somebody who went through 1994 as a young loan officer. I got into um, the business in 92. 94 was bleak. I, I literally closed three loans that year and two of them were in December. So I used to go to these, turns out World Savings had these sales training roadshows. And I would go to those meetings really to pick myself up because I was like, what the hell am I doing with my life? This is a terrible market. I, I, you know, I bought a bill of goods, blah, blah, blah. Maybe I need to get out of it. So I would go to these things and you would look around the room. And this is in the early 90s. And you're like, oh, my God, half these guys look like mutton heads with mustard on their ties and stained tweed jackets. If these guys are making a living, if any of these guys are making a living, then I know there's an opportunity for me if I stick with it. So I wanted to say, one, those were incredible. And I can't imagine that you knew how impactful they were at that point in time. Two, turns out if you took out a cost of funds loan 30 years ago, you probably wouldn't have refinanced until 2021. Yeah. So the training, the material was certainly right. And of course, you know, now you're, you're showing people that, look, hard times happen, but this worm will turn. Opportunities, you know, are certainly plentiful. Maybe not so now, but they will be around the corner as they always have been. I don't know what, what experience you had with that, if you felt the same sort of value that people were getting from it and probably recommending it, I would hope, to other mortgage companies because it was, it was sound and effective. Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's interesting when you build your career in a time of adversity. I actually think what we did back in those days with those seminars was to try to teach loan officers how to sell an odd product and how it would, could be used for financial planning as a tool and all those kinds of things. And we had put it together into a really effective way of presenting it. And then we had a few different presenters around the country that would basically go here, there, and everywhere. And we always had pretty large rooms full of people coming to attend, which tells you there was a real need for that unique kind of product. But more importantly, it reflects as I reflect back on those decades, my four decades in the business, I came in at a very adverse time, right? Rates were in their mid-teens. Fixed rates were when I first started as a loan officer and everybody was asking me if I was crazy coming into the mortgage business. The hard thing right now, frankly, or put another way, the good part of this market right now is I think anybody who comes in now fresh and starts on his or her own isn't poisoned <laughs> by having been spoiled by the 2020-2021 gift from the Federal Reserve that, that made everybody rich. And in contrast to that, and there's a whole lot of people who got really rich in those couple of years. They may own mortgage companies or they were just top producers and are struggling now because uh, they either established a lifestyle reflective of that huge income they made, may have forgotten how what it was like to work really hard to be a successful loan officer because it was like shooting ducks in a barrel during two-year period and are having to start over or may frankly decide to walk away. I even I speak to a lot of owners of mortgage banking firms that still have not brought their size down to where it likely should be. And so profitability will continue to be a challenge until we really truly right size the industry. But I think on the other side of this, just you know, using your 94 analogy, where you worked your 
tail end off that whole year, maybe did two lungs in December. I think it's people who actually come in through hard times and work overtime to build a business when others are sort of given up or not as working hard or forgotten how to, to be successful. They'll set the framework for a much longer career success, in my view, in the years ahead. Because the years ahead will definitely be better than this year, but we won't have the boom years as a gift from a Chairman Powell that really spoiled the industry too much so. Very true. Now, I definitely think that the lobbies of Long and Foster offices will be less crowded in 2024. The war of attrition is on and the, the good ones will, will remain and will prosper. And I think we're both on the same timeline, 2024, 2025 on a couple of levels should be substantially better than 22 and 23 and get us back to a, a normal status. Absolutely. Anything you want else you want to cover that I missed? Like, uh, I'm sure there's advice you're giving IMB clients right now. Anything you want to share? Is it? Well, look, I speak to groups of IMBs. In fact, just before we recorded this, I had a large group of IMBs who invited a whole ton of real estate agents. I speak to realtor groups and mortgage groups. We're all experiencing the same thing together. And what it really comes down to is the ability to find optimism before you implement your activities. Because if you can't get your own head together at a difficult time in the market and have some reason to go charge the hill every day, you probably shouldn't. I think the first thing is you've got to have the tools that you're going to use to go out and market what you do and bring added value to your referral partners if you're a mortgage person or to your clients if you're a realtor in. And so I, every presentation I give is giving them some of those tools, which I frankly get from economists like Mike Tratt and Tony at the NBA or Mark Sandy from Moody's or some Federal Reserve data or whatever that talks about what the market's going to look like in the years ahead. And from that, a lot of these folks take subsets of that data, those slides, put them into their own presentation, and it gives them something to go do tomorrow that's different than what they did yesterday. But it's a real easy time for people to get down and depressed. And as we head into the fall, I hate to say it, Tim, you know, I wrote on it, but uh, I hate to say it anyway. It's going to be a hard fall and winter because real estate purchasing is a cyclical market. Most of it starts happening in the spring market and continues a little bit during the summer. And you might get a little fall bump, but you know, it tends to be that over winter, it really slows down. And I think that's going to happen this time. So it's going to be a challenging time that people have to work through over the, over the months ahead. But, you know, all forecasts for 2024 look better from an interest rate standpoint and total forecasts for units, expected units to be sold on the resale market and new homes sold. So, you know, there's, there is light at the end of the tunnel, but we're in a rebuilding period. And that's why I think that those that start today and don't come in from having been in the industry for a while, actually that fresher view can be a great advantage. Hey man, what you I, don't know. I totally you know? agree with that. I was just talking to somebody who wanted to get into the industry and had a similar point of view uh, that I shared with them. And it does seem like no great shock, as you would imagine, companies have been right-sizing. They're using outsourcing companies like Citus AMC. They can only cut so deep, right, before they realize that they're really not even in the business. So there's a, a threshold that they can cut responsibly, which I think most have done. And they're starting to embrace 
different insurance products, assurance products, rep and warranty stuff, counterparty stuff, which is good for them. But what's nice is starting to see the GSEs actually starting to accept some of those products and outsource services as alternatives to sort of the counterparty backstops that they have today, capital and liquidity. So we're encouraged by that to help people get from A to B. But to your point, yeah, 2024 and 25 are going to be the big opportunities. And now it's just a, it's a grind to get there, but it'll come before you know it. Absolutely. All right, Dave. Thanks so much, man. I really enjoyed it. Always enjoy your, uh, your commentary and your perspective on things and uh, obviously your friendship. So thanks. Thanks, Tim. Same to you and great spending time with you. So appreciate it. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.